Uh, the scripture for this morning comes from Luke 18, uh, 1 to 8. And it says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron. Oh, that's John. My bad. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Uh, one thing I learned a couple of years ago that really shocked me was that the germ theory of disease, which is that we get sick from some kind of bacteria or virus that infects us, uh, which is what basically everyone believes today, came about incredibly recently. And you think about it, and it kind of sounds crazy, uh, the idea that tiny little living things get into your body and they, they use us, and that's why you're sick. You can imagine why nobody would have come up with that idea. It wasn't until 1850 that Louis Pasteur seriously proposed it, and his ideas didn't really become popular until, until about 1890 when more experiments confirmed it. If you can imagine it, the germ theory had this heated competition from what, we, what was called the miasma theory, which was the idea that epidemics happen because there's something in the air that's causing us to get sick. That's actually where we get this, the saying, there's something in the air. So germ theory was this huge revelation and shift in thinking. What was interesting, when you read about the huge Spanish flu pandemic in 1919, which killed almost 50 million people, is that germ theory, by that point, was really new. A lot of the population didn't really buy into the idea. You're telling me that we all get killed by these little tiny creatures? On the other hand, the scientists largely knew and agree about, agreed about germ theory, so they knew what was causing it for the most part, but even then they didn't really know how to treat it. They understood that this huge scientific revolution had happened, but they weren't quite able to work out the consequences of it in time to be effective. Scientists were good at preventing disease, and they could explain to you how it was happening, but once a person was sick, they really didn't know what to do. For that reason, a lot of the way that the Sp Spanish flu was treated was pretty much the way that all diseases beforehand were treated, before the germ theory of disease. They had all kinds of oils and herbs to make the air smell nicer and cleaner, as if the air was what was causing the disease, which was, which was disproven. What Jesus was constantly suggesting was something similar. As we'll see, it was a revolutionary shift in the way that humans relate to each other. Because on the cross, Jesus showed the fullness of God's wisdom and his purpose for human life. But the responses to Jesus were a bit like the responses to germ theory in 1919. 
Most people totally rejected the message, and that led to him being killed. And a few rare people believed in his message after the resurrection. But just like the scientists had a hard time working out the consequences of germ theory, those that believed Jesus also had a hard time working out the consequences of his resurrection. In this passage, we are given the primary way to work out those consequences for ourselves. Now, just before Jesus gives this parable from our scripture today, he's teaching about the day of the Lord. This was the day that pretty much every good Jew was hoping for. It was the day that God comes in judgment and reverses the way that the world is organized. The oppressors become the oppressed, the rich become the poor, and the evil have evil done to them. In other words, they hope that Jew, the, the Jews hope for God to come in power, his own power, and set everything right. All of the enemies of God would be rightly judged and taken away from their lofty position, and the good Jews that love God would replace them at the top. What Jesus said in this passage before this one would have been disappointing to them. He said, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, the day of the Lord will come, but these people won't notice it. That's quite surprising, isn't it? Listen to this from Joel 3 about when a different day of the Lord happened. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, could you imagine those things happening and you not noticing them? But Jesus says that this day of the Lord, the one that everyone was hoping for, won't be obvious unless you're a certain kind of person. He says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he was right. The kingdom of God really was in the midst of them as they were talking to Jesus, because the king was right there standing in front of them. Jesus was proven right just by saying, you won't notice the kingdom of God in your midst because it was right in front of them and they didn't notice it. Even more, they totally missed that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was winning the decisive victory of God by bearing the temptations and sins of the world and triumphing over them in accordance with the scriptures. And after conquering, he was crowned with a crown of thorns as the king of the world. They totally missed it when Jesus was raised from the dead and the new creation that all the good Jews were hoping for actually started. Heck, even the disciples almost missed it. As Jesus said, it would be extremely difficult over the next week to figure out what God was doing. So why was God making it so hard? Why didn't he make the day of the Lord obvious, like the moon turning to blood and the sun refusing to rise and death and destruction? He did it that way before, right? But if you look back at Jesus' teaching, it makes all the sense in the world. Jesus said that the power of God's coming kingdom wasn't going to look like the power of all the kingdoms of the ancient world. It wasn't going to look like Rome using the diplomacy of their massive legions to dominate far-flung provinces. It wasn't going to look like the forced cultural assimilation of the Seleucids. It wasn't going to look like the brutal forced immigration of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. It wasn't going to look like the imperial might of Britain or France or the USA with their ships and bombers and guns. It wasn't even going to look like the violence of Israel's conquest of Canaan. 
the power of God was being revealed, but not through amazing signs in the heavens or through overwhelming military force, but through Christ dying on the cross, through God giving himself up in love for his chosen people, through an entirely new creation where God has united himself to humans so that they can be who they were made to be, through a new people, the church, that imitates that power of self-giving love and spreads it through the whole world. He wasn't making it hard on purpose. It was hard by its very nature. It was a revolution, and it sounded about as crazy as germ theory probably sounded to people in the early 1900s. You mean power doesn't look like Rome dominating us in a war? You mean power looks like the guy on the cross, as if he's actually the one in charge? It sounds even more absurd than the idea that tiny little creatures that you can't see make their way into your body and make you sick. You can see how a lot of people would just reject it outright. In other words, everyone missed what God was doing in Christ because they were looking for the wrong things. And they were looking for the wrong things because they swam in the water of human culture and human sin. And we do too. Humans can be selfish and violent and they can be full of hatred sometimes. They like the people that like them, and they hate the people that hate them. They don't forgive their enemies because that would be too costly. So surely, us humans say, God is basically like us, just bitter. We think God is violent and selfish and full of hatred and vindictive. And so we expect that when God comes and reveals his power, he'll do it through death and destruction. And because we're expecting that, we aren't looking in the right place when God returns to his people in the person of Jesus Christ and saves them from their sins. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is not like the overwhelming destruction of Rome, but like a mustard seed, which begins small but grows into the largest of trees. And if you're looking for the overwhelming destruction of Rome, you won't see a mustard seed growing in your midst. Paul says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What that means is that we as Christians imitate the power of God revealed in Christ. We aren't looking for ways to enrich ourselves or to gain power so we can cram our way down on everyone else. We are looking out for the good of those who hate us. We love our enemies. We aren't trying to get attention through eloquent words or through a brutal show of force. We pray for those who persecute us. In short, we give ourselves up in love for something bigger than us. But kind of like germ theory, even if we accept it, we have a hard time working out what it means for our lives. And every once in a while, we revert a little bit back to our, the old way of doing things before. Just like in 1919, when people largely reverted back to the way that they treated disease before germ theory, we think, just this once, I can be selfish and everything will work out for me. Or, it would be so much easier if I just had a ton of power to force everyone to do what's right. And we need our brother or sister to come up to us and gently say, no, silly, that's not the way we do things. That's the way the world does things. Look at the cross. That's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's all well and good. And in fact, it's quite beautiful. But how in the world could God actually expect people to figure out what he's doing? If the wisdom and power of God are so completely different from our own, and I mean, just look at the cross and that's proof enough, 
how could we figure it out? How could we possibly begin to understand that we're supposed to be looking for the mustard seed growing in our midst? How could anyone in their right minds look at Jesus suffering in naked agony on the cross and say, this is the guy who's really in charge here. I'm going to follow him. You can imagine someone saying, let's just say I accept that these little tiny creatures come in and invade my body to make me sick. How do I actually live now that I have this information? In the same way, you can imagine people saying, let's just say I accept that the power of God looks like Jesus dying on the cross. How do I actually live now that I have this information? And that's where our passage comes in. The parable that Jesus tells seems unrelated to what he was saying in the passage before this. But you can see the tie pretty clearly in the very last verse of the parable. When the Son of Man comes, will he find such faith on the earth? You see that this is precisely the same frame as the previous passage. Both of them, you eventually find out, are about the coming of the Son of Man, the day of the Lord that everyone was looking forward to. You see that the previous passage paints a pretty bleak picture of the return of God and the coming of the Son of Man. There it'll happen, but very few will really see it or understand it. But people really should want to see it because it'll put them on the right side of God. Because another day of the Lord will eventually come, which will be much more obvious and destructive. But this passage opens the door up a crack. When the Son of Man comes, you're going to want to be found with faith. Faith is what will save you. Faith is the thing that will give you eyes to see that Jesus' kingdom was here. Everyone else is blinded by the way that humans usually do things, with selfishness and greed and violence, to the point that the king of the world and the god of the universe was sitting in front of them, and nobody recognized it. But faith will enlighten you to what God is doing in the world. It'll give you the red pill, if you've seen The Matrix. Now that sounds like a perfectly good, churchy answer. But what do we really mean when we're talking about faith in this passage? We often talk about faith as meaning something like trust, and that's totally right. We trust that God will save us, just like we trust our pews that they won't break and will fall through them. A lot of times we can take the word faith and replace it with trust, and it'll make a lot more sense. We also saw last week that one of the most prevalent meanings of the word faith in the New Testament was something like loyalty or faith, faithfulness or allegiance. Putting our faith in God meant giving him our allegiance, and acting like he is sovereign over our lives. We saw that there are tons of things that fight for our allegiance. The state, money, politics, Netflix, all of that stuff. But faith in God means giving God your loyalty and your allegiance and sticking to him in the face of all those things that want your loyalty. But it's interesting that the word faith has a bit of a quirky meaning in Luke. And it's not just in this passage, but practically every time that it's used in this book. It's a little bit different than the way that it's used in other books of the Bible, but kind of similar too in a way. And I think that this is the central passage that tells us what Luke means by faith. Faith for Luke is exactly the kind of persistence that this widow shows. You can see that it's kind of a mix of the trust, between, of the trust meaning faith and the loyalty meaning faith. You trust God enough to know that your loyalty won't be in vain. And so you keep on praying, even when it doesn't look like it's doing anything. At first, when you're reading this, you might be struck by why this persistence really should be necessary. Of all the things that Jesus could compare God to, why would he compare him to such a terrible judge? Why does God make it so hard to access him? 
But if you remember how hard it would have been at the time to understand what God was doing in the world, I don't think it really would have been all that surprising. Of course it takes persistence to understand the kind of power that God shows. Of course it takes a while to figure out that God's power is completely different from our own. It's incomprehensible that God would make his power known by being crucified on the cross. The wisdom of God was revealed in Jesus Christ, and people didn't, not, didn't only not understand them, but they killed him. Of course this isn't an overnight process. But it's not because God doesn't want to give you what you need, like the unjust ruler. It's actually because God's wisdom is so hard for us to get. And if you're insulted by that, again, just look at what, what we did when God's wisdom came to earth. There's a meme on the internet where there's a certain young lady who asked the internet, a guy asked me out and I said no. How do I let him know that I just want him to try a little bit harder? Of course, everyone on the internet makes fun of her and says that's not how that works. And they're right. Uh, but there's sometimes that I think that we think that God works like that. We think that God is super stingy and is just saying, how do I make them try harder? No, the reason we keep on praying is because when we pray, we are slowly aligning ourselves with God's will. And we have a long way to go because when the kingdom of God first came and his wisdom was revealed, we didn't recognize it. But that's okay because God is doing everything he can to help us along. He's not like the unjust ruler who doesn't actually want to help us, but ultimately just does because we were annoying. But we keep on bugging God and wrestling with him because when we do it, his glory and wisdom and presence starts to rub off on us. Looking for the kingdom of God turns you into the kind of person who can see it. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find that kind of faith on earth? Will he see this kind of persistence in us? Without it, we won't see the coming of God, even when it happens right in front of us. By its very nature, persistence means that you do something even when it looks like it's not working. In other words, you continue to pray when it looks like it's doing nothing and it looks like a pointless exercise. And God knows there are times when it doesn't look like your prayers are doing anything. Have you ever had months and months when it seems like all your prayers are dry and you really want God to meet you in your prayers, but it just doesn't seem like it's happening? Have you ever had times when you just don't think it's worth going to church because it doesn't seem like God is there with you? I definitely have. And I wish I had something to say that wasn't a cliche here. But my own experience and the persistence of the widow both tell me that the best thing to do then is just to keep at it. I have no idea why I ever had those times when my prayers seemed dry. But I'm glad I did, because somehow it made my relationship with God more intimate. I don't know how, but going through that period made me realize how much I needed God just to get through the day. Praying became a matter of necessity, not just a chore that I felt like I needed to do. One of the things that helped me through that was that I was in a community of Christians, some of whom weren't having their dry spell in prayers. Other Christians can help you get through those times just by expressing the joy that God gives them, and you can feel it secondhand. We need each other to get through those times. And when you pray and it doesn't feel like it's doing anything, you don't have to do the most perfect, reverent prayers. And you can be totally honest with God in those moments. Even the widow here isn't asking for anything that's all that holy. She's asking for justice, or perhaps better translated, vengeance for her enemy. 
Someone did something wrong to her, and she wants them to suffer the consequences. I have prayed things like, God, it doesn't feel like you're here with me right now. It feels like you've led me to a bad spot, and I'm frustrated with you. In the end, I eventually realized that God was right all along, but it was better for me to express those thoughts to God than give up praying. The psalmists pray that way all the time. In fact, Psalm 13 is a good one to pray when you feel like your prayers aren't doing anything. It says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my, my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. The fact that it's a widow who has this kind of persistence is really important too. The book of Luke apparently was written to a guy, this guy named Theophilus. Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus and uses all kinds of flowery language. So apparently he was a really big deal and probably rich and powerful and educated. This kind of persistence would definitely be something that the Theophilus would need to see in order to see the kingdom of God. Because it would be a heck of a lot easier for the widow to align her will with God's wisdom that was revealed on the cross than it would be for Theophilus. Because Theophilus would probably have all the access to the old worldly way of doing power that a person could possibly ask for. If things aren't going well for the widow, the only thing she can possibly do is pray. If things aren't going well for Theophilus, he can get his servants to do something to distract him. If the widow doesn't get her way, the only thing she can do is bug someone like the unjust ruler or God until it gets fixed. If Theophilus doesn't get his way, he has access to all kinds of people and money to make, the, make him get his way. The old way of doing power really doesn't work for the widow because she doesn't have any of it. So it makes sense that it would be easier for her to grasp onto God's wisdom that was revealed in his crucifixion. On the other hand, Theophilus has this constant temptation of going back to the old way of doing power. He can do, do the whole raw power, selfishness, bribery, and influence thing whenever he wants to. Theophilus is going to need some serious persistence in prayer if he's going to be changed enough that he can withstand these temptations. He's going to screw it up sometimes. Like Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's rough because we're probably closer to Theophilus than we are to the widow. Most of us have most of our needs met through the way that the world normally works. And that's a good thing that we're thankful for. We generally don't have problems getting three meals a day, unless we forget breakfast, which I almost always do. We mostly have working plumbing, we have water that's easy to get to, and we have shelter. All of that is more than like 90% of the population could say until 1800. For that reason, it's easier for us to be closer to Theophilus. We can think that prayer is a luxury or a hobby. The widow has to pray. She has no other choice. If prayer doesn't feel productive, there's 90 other secular things that we could do to feel productive. So we can delude ourselves into thinking that we don't have to be persistent in prayer. We don't have to align our will with the wisdom of God revealed on the cross by just praying just to put food on the table. The widow doesn't have those options. Either God helps her or she isn't helped. 
So if the way that worldly power goes in this place so close to DC really works out in our favor, we have to be constantly reminding ourselves that God's kingdom has a different way of doing power. We can easily revert to those old ways. And that means that we need to pray all the more to align ourselves with God's will, because otherwise we'll be aligned to DC's will. And we have to remind each other to keep on praying and not give up on it, because we have all the luxuries that can make it easier to give up on it. But we have good reason to persist in prayer. Because when we do it, we gain access to the wisdom and power of God, even if it's just by having it rub off on us. We get to somehow grasp that Jesus on the cross is what it means to be wise and to be in power. Because ultimately, we were made to give ourselves up in love for each other, just like he did. And just like how medicine slowly adjusted itself to the revolution of germ theory, we get to slowly have our minds changed so that we can understand the amazing revolution that Jesus established right here in front of us. We can see that the way that the of the cross is a better way, and it will make your life harder, but it makes your life better and more meaningful. We pray in expectation, not only that God will answer our prayers, but that God will meet us where we are, and that in being near to him, we will slowly, he will slowly rub off on us, and we will be transformed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us the faith and persistence necessary to come into your presence over and over in prayer so that you will rub off on us. And we will be the kinds of people that can see your kingdom when it comes. Amen. <laughs>